Okay, we've been going through our study in the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're getting close to the end of David's life in this passage as we've been going through this book. And it's a place where we find some very important lessons. So David's been looking back over his life and he's been giving God the credit for anything good that has come from his life. And uh, now David's going to continue to do that in our passage today. And that's interesting when people get to the end of their days, if they've lived a long life on the earth, you know, they, they usually do have some very good wisdom to share. So uh, we'll hear that from David here. He's a man that walked with God and uh, there's, he's got some great words for us here. So let's look at 2 Samuel 23. We're going to start here in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David is how it starts. And this statement means that these are the last words that David was officially declaring as the anointed king of Israel. And he's giving the glory to God, you know, for how God worked in his life and how he worked through his life. And, you know, I hope and pray that at the end of each of our lives, we've got a testimony like that where we can say, this is how God worked in my life and this is how God worked through my life to use me to minister, to serve other people. But to have this kind of testimony, you have to have a servant's heart. You have to be humble. And we're going to see that in David's words as he expresses this to us here. So going on in uh, verse 1 again. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So here's David referring to himself, and it's very interesting as you see how he's describing himself here. He says, first of all, that he is the son of Jesse. So he doesn't announce himself as a great king or as a great military commander, although he could have done either one of those, but he points back to his humble beginning. His father, Jesse, was basically a nobody in Bethlehem. You know, he wasn't a great leader. He wasn't some well-known big shot. His dad was just a simple farmer who had some sheep. Had a lot of sons, but he had some sheep. So David came from this little-known family, and yet God took David from this very humble setting and made him the king of Israel. And it says here, he was the man raised up on high. And that means that he didn't raise himself to the throne position, you know, of being the king. It was the Lord who placed him in that position and raised him up on high. And this humble attitude that David shows right here, it's right in line with the way the Lord works. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the Lord, he loves to choose the humble and he loves to work through humble people. And I believe the reason the Lord does that is because the humble person, they don't want to take any credit for what they do. They will gladly give all the credit and all the glory to the Lord. And honestly, that's only right because it's the Lord who's done the work through them anyway, right? So he deserves all the glory. So when God chooses people that he's going to work through, His choice is not based on how high their social status is or if they're in some place of high honor. That doesn't affect the Lord's choice at all. I mean, God looks at the heart. He wants to use humble people. That's the qualifying factor. And David said here too, 
If you notice, he said he was the anointed of the God of Jacob. So God is the one who called David to be the king, and then he anointed him to fulfill his calling. And that's the way the Lord works too. When he calls us, then he equips us, okay? And we see some pictures here of Jesus in all of this. Jesus came from a very humble beginning too, right? Being born in a stable to some very poor parents. But God also anointed Jesus. And Jesus is referred to as the anointed one. And that phrase, the anointed one, actually means the Christ, the Messiah. So David here is a picture of the future anointed king, Jesus. And his kingdom will reign forever. David also refers to himself here in verse 1 as the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's how he wanted to be known. That's amazing to me. He could have been called himself by the title, I'm the man who killed Goliath. You know, people were singing songs about that, if you remember, got him in trouble for a while. He could have also said, I'm the great king of Israel, because he was the greatest king Israel has known until the time of Christ. But he wanted to be known as a simple psalmist. You know, and I think this is so cool because as a psalmist, he would help other people worship God. Think about that. And his words are still helping us worship the Lord today. So as a psalmist, he'd help understand, you know, that sweet fellowship that a person can find when they focus on worshiping the Lord. And it amazes me the Lord is still using the words of David, you know, to help others learn to worship the true God, the God of Jacob. And what sweet fellowship, you know, we can enjoy when we take time, you know, to open our hearts to the Lord and worship, and the Lord just fills us with his joy, right? That's what our future is gonna be like in heaven. And that's gonna be so awesome as we worship the Lord and we have continuous joy without end over and over again. And we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to, to enjoy that. We can worship the Lord right now in this life and get a head start on what's coming for us in the future. Isn't that cool? Now look at verse two as David goes on. Here's what he said. Uh, this is David saying these words. He says in verse two, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. So David doesn't take credit for his words as a psalmist either. He gives all the credit to the spirit of the Lord. You know, I'm sure where people, there were people that were trying to come up to David and give him some praise, you know, as, ability, as his ability of the man of God who could bring such beautiful words of worship before the Lord. But I'm also sure that if somebody tried to say that to David, he'd probably quickly say, just praise the Lord, you know, because all these words that you were hearing are from him anyway. This isn't my stuff. Yeah, so uh, I love that humble attitude you know, that gives all the glory back to the Lord because he alone is the one who deserves the glory. So David's doing that right here. He said, the spirit of the Lord is the one that spoke by me. I Don't give me any credit for this. This is all God. Verse three, he said, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So David is quick also here to acknowledge that the great and mighty God of Israel, the rock as he calls him, the one who is so immovable and solid, that God has given him the wisdom and spoke to him as the son of Jesse. 
So David really appreciates this. He knows where he came from. And he knows here's the Lord who has stooped way down to come to David's level and talk with him. And so he calls him the rock, you know, he's the one that's immovable. And he says this, this great wisdom that God gave him to rule, God gave him two things here to keep in mind as he rules as the king of Israel. The first one is always be just in all of his rulings. And that's what he said here. He who rules over men must be just. So David understood that in every decision he was to make as the leader of Israel, as the king, it was to be done with justice, perfect fairness. And David was amazing in how he carried that out. We saw some of the stories of how David was very kind and gentle to people that we might look at and say, man, they need to be punished now. And David would give them grace. So he, he used justice in his, his decisions. The other thing the Lord told him there was that he had to always be careful to do everything God's way. And that's what it says here, ruling in the fear of God at the end of verse three. That means when you make a decision, you must know that God's watching this and he's gonna determine whether you're doing this out of fear for the Lord or fear for man or just out of your selfish pride. So David understood that from the Lord. This is what God told me to do. When I rule, I need to rule in the fear of God. And I like what someone said, the man who leads others needs to be led by God. Said no man should rule over men unless he himself is consciously ruled by God. And somebody else said this, it takes the fear of God to free us from the fear of man. Those are good words. Think about this, wouldn't it be a different world if ever lead, every leader took these words to heart that the Lord gave to David, saying, whenever you rule, this is how you must do it. You must rule in justice, and you must rule in the fear of the Lord. Well, we obviously don't see that today, do we, in the world? That's gonna happen, though, in the future, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth. But for now, you know, we can all do our part, because each one of us as Christians, we're called to be leaders. I don't know if you thought that through before, because the Lord's final marching orders to us, the church, was to make disciples, right? So we're to lead people to Christ, there's a leader's job, and we're to lead them into being mature believers in Christ. That's a leader's job too. So we're all supposed to be leaders in this world, spiritual leaders. Now in David's case, as well as in anyone's life that's trying to be a leader, as Christ called them to be, there's gonna be temptations to compromise and not do things exactly the way the Lord wants them done, right? Some of those temptations are very strong. So we've gotta determine in our hearts that we're gonna follow these two commands that the Lord gave to David, that we will always be just, and we will always have the fear of God. And that'll protect us from so many things in this world, and the Lord can use us in a great way, just like he did with David. And David describes what this leader is gonna be like if he is careful to follow God's directions on how to be a godly leader. So look at verse four, he's gonna describe this guy and his uses of, as David does, some beautiful words here to express this. It says in verse four, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. So this type of ruler, he said, is gonna be like the morning sunshine. 
And what does the morning sunshine do? It just brightens your day, doesn't it? <laughs> I know, I, I love it when you look out the window in the morning, man, it's just beautiful outside. So it really lifts you up. And you know, when you wake up and you look outside, you can you see that it's such a beautiful morning, it can just be invigorating to you. And that's what a godly leader is supposed to do, right? He can encourage people and make them look forward to the future. Because doesn't it make it easier for you looking toward the day when you wake up and see it beautiful outside? You know, sometimes when it's, it's dull and dreary looking, it's like, oh, you're kind of dragging yourself to get going. But when the sun's out, it's like, oh, this is great, you know? So you do look forward to the day. So it also goes on to say a godly leader is going to be like a morning without clouds. I love these pictures. <laughs> Can you see that in your mind? It's a clear morning that is bright, and it has this warmth with it. Because there's no clouds, you know, the sun's just shining through and you can feel the warmth. And again, that's how we should be. Helping people to clearly understand, like that clear morning with no clouds. Help people clearly understand the ways of the Lord. And we're supposed to be able to help them experience the warmth of God's love. So, man, we can appreciate these words of David when you, you meditate on what he's saying here. And he also mentions the tender grass springing out of the earth. Now, what is that describing? That's describing new life, right? Everything's working, the sun's shining, the, the rain has come, and now this grass is springing up. It's new birth, and of course, that's the picture of what God can offer people, a new life in Christ, that new birth. And then he mentions also this clear shining after rain. You know, it's describing that refreshing, that clean sense that you get after a, a nice spring rains out there, you know. And that's what the Lord does with us, too, when we start our day spending time in the Lord's Word. So we get before the Lord. He does that refreshing in us. He cleanses us. And doesn't this picture that David paints with his words, you know, sound like a beautiful place, <laughs> a place that you'd like to be? Well, that's what we can experience as we daily walk with the Lord. But remember here, it's not just for us to enjoy. We're supposed to lead others to this beautiful place as well, right? And it's a lot easier to lead others if you're going there yourself, right? Now, if you've had somebody try to give you directions before, and sometimes you find it, sometimes you don't. But if you're, especially in the store, and the guy says, it's in this aisle, and I'll take you there, thinking, well, pfft. We're going to get there now. I don't have to worry about it. Am I going to miss it or walk by it three times? He's going to take me right there. So if we're going to this beautiful place every day with the Lord, where it's spiritually a bright day of sunshine, fresh after the rain, new life is there. You know, if we go there in the word with the Lord every morning, then we've got a place to share with someone else because we've been there. We've been there. Verse 5 goes on. David says, Although my house is not so with God. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. So David admits here, as he's described, here's how you rule the way God says to rule. Here's what you look like if you rule like that. And then David has to admit, although my house is not so with God. So he is saying, I have not always lived this perfect, obedient life. And we know that. We see David's life. God recorded it for us, right? So David, he admits that that's not the case. He'd love to say, I never messed up. Man, I had this beautiful morning every day. But 
we look in the mirror and we say, how many of us can say we've had that beautiful morning every day, right? So I love David's humble honesty here, right? He lets us know we're humans, man. We got the flesh. We got a fight in our hands every day. Yep. So he hasn't always ruled justly. He hasn't always made every decision as king with the fear of the Lord in mind. But he says, even though he has failed over and over again, if you look at the second line of verse 5, it says, yet. That's one of the words you love to see. He says, yet, that God has always been faithful to David. Isn't that amazing? He's made, it, it made with me an everlasting covenant. So he says, this, this is God's covenant he made with me. Obviously, it wasn't based on David's behavior being perfect because he just said, I didn't make that grade. Yep. But as David said, his house is not so. But thankfully, this covenant is based on the faithfulness of God, not on David. And we can all say amen to that, right? I mean, our covenant is based on the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. It is not based on us. We'd have trouble lasting one minute if it were based on us at all, right? It's all based on the Lord. So David here was saying that he's going to be blessed because he's in an everlasting covenant with the Lord. And that new covenant that Jesus made for us, it's not based on us, and we can be very thankful for that. It's based on the blood of Christ. Uh, if it were based on our faithfulness to the Lord or even our sinlessness, you know, us never sinning again, none of us would be saved. We wouldn't have a chance but praise God, the covenant is based on his perfect sacrifice. So we are eternally safe in Christ. You think about this, even in David's covenant, it wasn't based on David being perfect, but it was based on the God of David who is perfect. Praise the Lord, we serve a perfect God. Verse 6, as David's talking about his walk with the Lord, he's letting us know not everybody's following God's ways here, God's path. Verse 6, it says, but the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. And why is that? Why can't you pick them up with hands? Because they'll stick you, right? And they're painful. So the sons of rebellion here, he's referring to those people who are in outright rebellion against the Lord. And these are people who refuse to humble themselves and follow the Lord. They'd rather do things their own way rather than God's way. And this also includes those people who don't even care what God has to say about things. So what do these people look like? I want you to look to Romans chapter five a minute. Take a look at Romans chapter five. We wanna see what do these people look like that he's talking about here who are these sons of rebellion. Romans chapter five and verse 10 says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, right? So it says here we were enemies before we came to the Lord. We were enemies of God? Yes. We were not following God's ways. We were walking against his ways. We did everything the way we wanted it done, right? So the Lord here, he's saying those rebellious sons, they look a whole lot like you and me before we came to Christ. Yeah, so seeing this, you know, should cause us to be humble ourselves. And we want to make sure now on this side of Christ 
that we're doing things God's way and not our own way. You know, I, I heard a Baptist preacher a while ago, he said, if you want to check how close you are to the Lord, then just imagine someone walking up to you on any given day and they ask you a very direct question. Right now, are you living for Jesus or are you living for yourself? And however long it takes you to answer that question, that'll tell you how close you are to the Lord. If you answer it quickly without hesitation, then you're probably close to the Lord. But, and that's where we should all be, right? But if you have to stop and think about it before you answer it, then you probably need to get closer to the Lord. And I thought that was a really good test to check ourselves. And I think we need that from time to time, right? Because there's a lot of distractions in this world. We've got an enemy who's trying to trip us up, to get our mind off Christ, to discourage us. So a, a question like that is very piercing, I know. But I think it's a good question. Kind of wake us up, get us back in line with the Lord. And David uses the illustration here as he's talking about these sons of rebellion. He used the illustration of thorns. You know, if you ever grabbed a flower or some plant that had thorns on it and you didn't know it, what was your reaction to that? Your reaction is probably to throw it down on the ground or get away from it, you know, because your hands hurt to touch it. And then you probably were shaking your hands for a while after that because you had that stinging pain that kind of lingers a little bit after you touch them. So the illustration that David picks here is very interesting. He said, this is what rebellious people are like to the Lord. They're worthless. They can't be used for anything because they just cause pain. So all you can do with them is cast them down. And of course, the next step is to burn them up. And that's what he's going to say in the next verse, in verse 7. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So he says that to, to have the, the, he says that you have to keep these people, these thorns, at a distance to protect yourself. He describes this picture of having armor on. So it's kind of like if you're going to grab these, you better have some armor gloves so the thorns don't come through them. And you might want to use the shaft of your spear to pick them up instead of you grabbing them with your hand anyway. You want to keep them at a distance so these thorns don't stick you. And then he says, you know, that their future, if they don't repent, is to be burned. And that's a picture of eternal judgment. You know, like I said, that looked like you and me, those sons of rebellion, before we came to Christ. That was our end, too. We were going to face eternal judgment without Christ. So it's a scary picture here. It should be humbling and hopefully encourage us in the fear of the Lord here. But look at the difference now between David's life, somebody who follows the Lord, and the life of a rebellious person here. Their end is going to be burning in the fires of judgment. But David, those who follow the Lord, their end is going to be a blessing because they are in an everlasting covenant with the Lord. Beautiful picture David paints here. And, of course, the encouragement would be you want to be on God's side. You want to be on that covenant side. You don't want to be on the side of the thorns where you're going to be burned. So it goes on in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. So now David's going to acknowledge these guys who helped him, okay? And this is pretty cool, I think, when you look at the big picture of this passage. David has been giving the Lord the credit for everything, right? He said, it's the Lord who spoke through me. 
So if you if you've gotten anything out of the Psalms that I've written, give praise to the Lord because those are his words. And then he says, the Lord told me how to be a ruler. And as I followed that, it looked good like the bright morning, bright morning, sunny day and everything. But then he said, those rebellious people, they're like thorns, they don't have any future. Now he's gonna basically thank the Lord for the men that God brought into his life that helped him to accomplish God's calling. It's pretty awesome the way David does this. So it goes on in verse eight, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite. And the reason he got that nickname, if you would, is because he had killed 800 men at one time. So now David is going to acknowledge these guys who helped him reach success in his military battles. David did not fight alone. He fought Goliath alone, but from that point on, the Lord provided support and help for him, okay? The funny thing is, though, if you remember the history of these guys who were David's mighty men, as they're called in Scripture here, they came from a rough, messed up background. <laughs> and uh, we were told that they were discontented people and that they were, many of them were in debt when they first came to David. If you remember, we looked at that quite a while back as the Lord introduced us to those guys. So they didn't have a lot going for them when they came to join David. But the Lord worked in their lives once they came to David. And here, David was recognizing these men as the ones who supported him and helped him to be that great king. So obviously, it was the Lord who brought these guys to fight alongside David. And turn, over, turn forward a little bit here in your Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. It's a couple of books further on than where we are, but I want you to see something in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, the Lord tells us a little bit about these guys here. 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and look down to verse 10. It says, now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So the Lord is telling us here, these are the guys who strengthened themselves with him. And how do they strengthen themselves? In the Lord, the same way David did, remember? We saw that passage a while back where David said he strengthened himself in the Lord. And that's what David trained his guys to do. So the Lord wants to recognize these men here too, back in 2 Samuel 23, that David is, is acknowledging. And the Lord also wants us to know about these guys. So he's got some lessons for us as we check these guys out. So the Lord wants to use these guys to encourage you and me in our walk with the Lord. You know, these men started out pretty messed up, but God ended up using them in a very mighty way. So be encouraged. You know, if you came from a messed up background, don't, don't let that get you down because the Lord can do amazing things through you if you humble yourself before him just like these guys were trained to do by David. So the Lord shows us here, as we're gonna look, get a chance to look at some of this, he shows us the structure of these guys and how they were set up in David's army. There were three guys who were at the top level, and then there were three guys at the second level down, and then there were 30 or so men under them. And then of course he had the rest of his 
couple hundred guys there, a few hundred guys that, that were his mighty men. But this is the upper leadership. And David's talking about leadership here, right? So he's saying this is how the leadership was on these guys and the guys under them and the guys under them. So all of these guys, too, we're going to see them. They're all like special forces guys. They're highly trained, very dangerous soldiers. As you can see, this, this first guy here, right, he was able to kill 800 men at one time. So David had trained these guys to fight hard to win the battle, but you got to be sure that above all, he trained them to fight under the Lord's guidance and to be always trusting in the Lord for the outcome of the battle. And that's the way you fight. So the first guy, that we'll see that as we look at them, the first guy that David tells us about is this Joshab guy. We're told he was the chief among captains, which meant that he was a leader among leaders. This is a sharp guy that the Lord has placed here. And his killing of 800 men at one time was a supernatural thing. You can't physically do that, okay? It's beyond us as humans. So what he's saying here is as this guy followed the Lord, the Lord used him and filled him with strength, probably like Samson, he's able to kill these 800 guys. God gave him the ability to fight like that. And this guy was a Caleb kind of guy. He was fearless. And the lesson we learned from his life is that we need to be willing to stand for God when the odds look impossible. Can you imagine him seeing 800 guys coming at him and thinking, I'm the line. Nobody gets by me. Nobody gets by me. I am the line. So he, he did the job. He stood and trusted in the Lord. Amazing. So the lesson we get is we can stand for God too when the spiritual warfare looks impossible. And we're to fight for the Lord and his people. Because one thing we'll see with these guys is look a little closer at them. They're not fighting for themselves. They're fighting for God and for God's people. And that's what we're called to do as well. It's not for us. This is for the Lord and for his people. So the Lord can do some amazing things through us, but only if we're willing to make a stand for God when the odds look impossible, okay? We have to be willing to step out in faith. Boy, I can encourage you, as we've seen in some of our outreach ministries, when you step out in faith, the Lord is there. He is there. You're not alone. So I encourage you, step out in faith. That's kind of what the challenge is, too, for the talents. Step out in faith. Yes, the Lord's going to stretch you. Yes, he's going to have you maybe do some things you're not too comfortable with. That's okay. That's stepping out in faith according to God's leading and in finding that God is there. So that opportunity comes to us when we're pushed beyond our capabilities and when we're in over our head, as I like to say. Because that's when we see the Lord do some great and amazing things through us. This guy was in over his head. How'd you like to face 800 guys? I don't think so. <laughs> So he was in over his head, right? And that's where the Lord shows up and does some amazing things. And it can be a very hard thing to stand up for the Lord. We're not saying it's an easy thing, okay? But when we're called to make a stand for Jesus, we need to do that. Take a look at John chapter 15 for a second. Just a couple of passages here I know you're familiar with, but some encouragement in this too. When we read them, you're going to say, this is encouraging? But yes, this is encouraging, right? John chapter 15 down to verse 18. Here's Jesus talking to the disciples before he goes to the cross, and he says in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, that means you're holy, you're set apart for God's use. Therefore, the world hates you. So is it easy to stand up for the Lord? No, it's not always easy. Another passage in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, where the Lord talks to us about, very clearly about spiritual warfare. Look down to verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. <clears throat> Put on the whole armor of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be uh, able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And look down to verse uh, 13 here. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Yeah, so is it easy to stand for the Lord? No, there are times where it's gonna be very difficult. The Lord says here, it's an evil day. <laughs> you know, We'll have a, the awesome, beautiful days when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. But for now, we're living in evil days. So are we called to make a stand for the Lord? Yes, we are. Is it going to be tough? Yes, it will be, but it's worth it because the Lord is with us. We don't stand alone. Back in 2 Samuel 23, we look back to verse 9. He's going to tell us about another guy here. It says, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ohite, one of the mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel had retreated. So here's this guy, he's one of David's mighty men. The Philistines are coming against him, so what happens? Israel decides to run the other way, okay? But look at this guy, verse 10. He arose and he attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. <laughs> yeah, so what do you think of this guy, Eleazar? It says at the end of verse nine that the rest of the army of Israel was retreating. So what do you do when your whole army is retreating? You look at this guy. He didn't just stand there, if you notice. It says he rose up and he attacked the enemy. He didn't say, I'm gonna stand this ground. He says, I'm gonna take this ground. Wow. And he wasn't gonna quit. He wasn't gonna give up until the victory was won. Wow. So that's something a lot of Christians need to learn because we give up too easy. Our society has made us soft. We're used to comfort. If it's not comfortable, I'm leaving. That's, that's foolish in the sight of the Lord. He's called us to stand in difficult times. The Lord worked through this guy to give them this great victory. You know, he, if you notice, it says the Lord brought about the great victory. This guy didn't do that. The Lord did that. He knew that. And this is the same Lord who lives in us as believers, you know. So we see here that David didn't just teach his men to fight the physical battle. He also taught them how to trust in the Lord. So picture this Eleazar. He's on the battlefield here. The Israelite army decided, you know, they're going to go the opposite direction. So they're not going to be by his side. They're not going to support him. But they do show up. They show up at the end because there's some profit to be made from victory. And uh, that's what we saw at the end of verse 10. They, they showed back up. It says only to plunder. Wow. So they wanted the profit, but they didn't want to sacrifice for it. So we learn from this that there are some people who will stand and fight, but there are others who want to gain from the success of the others who are in the battle. And it tells us that people like Eleazar, they stand apart, way apart in the crowd. 
And it's our choice which group we want to be with. You want to be part of those who stand for the Lord or those who just want to come back and grab the leftovers once the hard work is done. Because those are the people he shows us right here. And look at the intensity with which Eliezer fought. By the end of the battle, his hand had cramped around his sword. And it's been said in some battles like this back in that time period, you know, when they used these swords all the time, that a soldier fought for so long that his hand cramped like this, he could not let go of the sword at the end of the battle. His hand was locked in that position. And that's what you see here. The sword had become part of him. So they'd have to put the hand in, in warm water back then to get it loosened up or even help him begin to let go. Or another soldier would have to pry that sword out of his hand because his hand literally locked up from grabbing it so tightly for so long and fighting with it all that time. Now you think of the lesson here for us. We should be able to fight in spiritual warfare with such intensity that our sword, the word of God, has become part of us. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil and Jesus fought that spiritual battle with him? Jesus used the word of God very accurately to easily win that battle. An the example there uh, Jesus has for us is to show us as believers, we need to learn the God, word of God so well that we can defend ourselves against any attack that the enemy has. One person said that some believers, you know, when they're attacked by the devil, they have to pull out a toothpick or a pocket knife of the word because that's all of the word they know. And that's all they have to defend themselves. But as you apply yourself to know the word of God, the Lord is equipping you to be able to pull out the exact sword that is needed for every attack that the enemy throws at you. <coughs> Excuse me. The devil doesn't like this passage. <laughs> so we're to be like Eleazar. That sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, has become stuck to our hand. It's become part of us. Uh, look at Hebrews 4 for a second. I know this is another passage that's familiar to you. Or I'll read it to you when I get there, Lord willing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, as we talk about this sword, says very clearly, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And Ephesians 6 tells us to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So continue to grow in your knowledge of the Bible. And it's not for the sake of head knowledge. It's, it's such an important weapon that we can have when the enemy attacks. You know, and it's not if the enemy attacks, but when the enemy attacks. Because as a believer, you are on the devil's radar. It took me a while to figure that out in my life, but I know that's true. He's walking around seeking whom he may devour. So stay in the word of God on a daily basis. You know, a soldier, he's trained to keep his weapon close to him at all times, right? It's to become part of him. Well, this word is our weapon. Keep it ever close to you every day. And I praise the Lord that he has blessed our church with a number of teachers, from the Sunday school teachers all the way to the pulpit speakers. 
And I can assure you that each of them has it in their heart to teach the whole counsel of God's word from cover to cover. We want our people and our children protected. So although our fellowship is not large, I pray that we will always be faithful to uphold that awesome responsibility of teaching all of God's word to all God's people. And I ask you to pray for us in that regard too. And we do thank you for your prayers. And you think about this, the church at large, the body of Christ, is gonna be held responsible you know, for being part of this training of the word of God too. So as we hear of less and less churches teaching the whole counsel of God's word, how are they equipping their people to make a stand for the Lord against our enemy? They're gonna be held accountable for leaving their people in a dangerous place without much of a weapon, without much training, when they have to answer before the Lord, you know? How upset do we get when we have an administration in charge of our country that wants to weaken our military? Well, what do you think churches and pastors are doing when they stop teaching the word of God and they just want to make church a fun place to be? You know, the Bible says that pastors and teachers are supposed to equip the saints, that is the believers, for the work of the ministry. My prayer is that the teaching of the Bible in its entirety will never cease from this pulpit or from our Sunday school classrooms ever. Our goal here is to equip every one of you to be able to stand against our enemy because he is actively engaged in warfare against all believers. Back in 2 Samuel, verse 23, look down to verse 11. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. That's barley. So the people fled from the Philistines. So this is the next guy we see. His name is Shammah. And we're told about the situation here. This field was a field of lentils. It was barley. That's what they fed the animals. And if you were in a time of famine or if you were poor, you would eat this too, but it wasn't the main food source. You know, the typical person was going to eat. Normally, they'd want to eat the wheat. But this barley was still a food source if you were going through some hard times. But when the Philistines came to take over this field, what did the Jewish people do? At the end of verse 11, the people fled from the Philistines. Okay? But they were told about Shammah's reaction. Look at verse 12. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field. He defended it and he killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Wow. So in Shama's mind, this field belonged to God and to God's people. The Lord had given us to Israel and he had promises to them. This was, this was part of the promised land, a small part but it was still part of the promised land. So Shammah was, was not gonna allow the Philistines to get even a small part of this, what didn't belong to them. So Shammah was a man of principle. That's what we learn about him. He was gonna make a stand for what was right, even if it cost him his life. He's standing alone. And remember, this field was lentils, it was barley, the animal's food. So this tells us that Shammah wasn't doing this because it was wheat, it was expensive, it was the good stuff. He was a man who's gonna defend this ground no matter what his value was. He believed in the principle that right is right and wrong is wrong. No matter what the value is, 
There is a right and there's a wrong. And unfortunately, we're learning from our own country that it's okay to let some things go, as long as it's not hurting too many people. I mean, you think about the evil of abortion that comes to mind in our country. I'm sure that any liberal politician in our country would use that as an excuse that even if you get past the moral issues of abortion, that they would say that it's not really affecting that many people, you know? They'd say that's such a small part of our total population that's being affected by that. But I don't care what their flimsy argument they come up with, the murdering of a baby is still murder, all right? And as believers, we need to be godly people of principle, that right is right, and wrong is wrong, regardless of how many people you think it affects. Shama here is an example for us to, to take in, to be a godly man or a godly woman of principle. Now, you've got to admit, we don't see much of that anymore these days, right? We're all supposed to be tolerant. Tolerant of what? Of evil. Just let it go. No. <laughs> Shama shows us there's no way. And, and look what happened when he took a stand for the Lord. It says the Lord brought about a great victory. He stood, but it wasn't him. It was the Lord working through him. Isn't that amazing? You know, you just, it says, you notice something here too, by Shama defending the ground over the smaller thing, the barley, the enemy never got to the bigger stuff, the wheat. They never made it there. So another lesson here, if we stand up for things that are smaller, then they don't get a chance to become bigger. That's why principle is so important. You nip it in the bud, you don't let it grow. So if you care enough about the little stuff, the bigger stuff ends up getting protected too. Isn't that amazing? And Ephesians 4.27, the New Testament, is a real good summary for this passage here. It says, nor give place to the devil. It's interesting, that word place in that little verse there, it means the smallest piece of ground. So the encouragement is don't get the, let the devil have even the smallest part of ground in your life. So to be God's children and God's soldiers, we need to be people of principle, you know, that, that we have a desire to advance the kingdom of God and not give up the smallest piece of ground to our enemy. And what will happen if we do that? We're told here at the end of verse 12, the Lord will bring about a great victory. We're going to stop here today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great love you have for us. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement you, you try to put in us. We need your, your exhortation sometimes, Lord, to just put us on the spot and to say, are we standing as people of principle? Are we willing to fight when the odds look impossible? Are we willing to stand when no one else stands with us? And Lord, we say, give us the faith, give us the boldness to do that because we want to advance the kingdom of God. We don't want to see the enemy get a single inch of your ground. This world belongs to you, Lord. These people, they belong to you. You paid for them through the blood of your son, Jesus. So Lord, thank you for the words you speak to us from your word here. I pray these words will ring in our heart for the rest of this week, Lord. Give us encouragement to stand for, strong for you despite anything going on around us, Lord. Help us to stand, above all, to stand and do exactly what you told us. 
Thank you for the folks that are here with us today, taking in your word. We pray for those two who are hearing on the streaming, you know, and we pray that you'd encourage their hearts, help them to make a stand for you in this evil day. We give you back, Lord, all praise, all honor, all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.